today we're finishing up in our teaching series uh, called Encounters with Grace. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at different stories in the Gospels uh, where Jesus reveals something of people's true identity to them. Um, That they're chosen, that they're forgiven, that they're loved, freed, called and empowered. And we've kind of really been asking the question, like, how do these truths that we're loved, that we're chosen, how do they go from just being beliefs to our lived experience? Like, more than just believing that we're loved, like, what might, what might it look like if our lives actually experience the embrace of a loving father? Like, more than just kind of believing that we've been forgiven, what might our lives look like if we kind of left that shame from the past in the past? And today we're kind of finishing up this series by looking at the truth that we are called. Um, And the question that we're kind of really going to be diving into today is like, what might it look like if we didn't just know that we were called by God, but we fully stepped into that calling and allowed it to give shape to every single part of our lives? And my guess is that the idea that we're called um, probably generates some different reactions in the room, right? And I kind of think it's probably because there's a lot of ambiguity around what it actually means to be called by God. Often it gets kind of solely equated with work or with a job. But what happens if you lose your job? Like what happens if you're out of work for a while? What does calling mean in those moments? And as we look through scriptures, and my guess is probably as we asked around the room today, like we see moments when God absolutely calls us into specific things, whether that's a line of work or to live in a certain area or, you know, how to use our time. But these things, they're temporary callings, not unimportant, like incredibly important, but they're temporary. But there is a bigger, there's a permanent calling that every single one of us in this room today is given. And it's this, it's the foundation of everything um, that every other calling that we're called into is built upon. It's that we're called to follow Jesus. And if you lose sight of this bigger macro calling, then we very quickly lose our way. And it's this macro calling that we see most commonly in the Gospels. Like the call that people um, receive from Jesus is a call to himself. He calls people to follow him. Um, But this phrase is so often used in the church, right? And it kind of almost just sounds a little bit like a cliche now. Like following Jesus, it's the Sunday school answer, like, yep, we nod along, yep, tick, we know we should do that. But the reality is that it's a lot easier to leave this call as a nice cliche. Because to fully step into this means to hand over control of every single area of your life. Like it's far safer and easier for this call to remain in the abstract Because to follow Jesus in the gritty reality of everyday life will cost us everything. And yet for those who kind of take up the invitation, who choose to deny themselves, to give up their autonomy, they discover something more precious than anything this world could offer. Like you experience the truth that the God of the universe, like despite kind of your failures, your faults, whatever's going on in you, he wants you. He has called you by name. And more than that, he calls you to work with him in seeing his kingdom break out in all areas of your life. And so kind of whether you're a student or an engineer, whether you're on maternity leave or you're unemployed, like your primary call is as a follower of Jesus. So my question for us today is like, what if we didn't just kind of glaze over at like the usual jargon of following Jesus? What if we took this out of the box of theory and asked God to show us personally, what would it look like for me today to follow you with everything? Um, And that's only going to be a work of the Spirit, so can I just pray for us as we dive in? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. 
We thank you that you're here with us. And I ask, Lord, would you come and would you call each of us afresh today by name? Would we hear you speak to us, God? Would you open our hearts now? And Lord, would you take these words I'm about to say and use them for your glory? Amen. Amen. So the passage that we're going to be rooting ourselves in today, it's found in John chapter 21. Um, And this is the moment when Peter is called by Jesus. Um, And Jesus actually calls Peter multiple times. Like we often think it was this one hit wonder and like the rest was history. But that definitely wasn't the case with old Peter. Um, And I don't know about you, but I find that kind of deeply reassuring when I look at my own journey. Um, But the story is right at the end of John's gospel. It's the last story in the book. um, And it's found in John 21. So if you have a Bible, feel free to grab that. It will come up on the screen. But just to give a little bit of context as to kind of where we've uh, got to, it's not gone well for Pete, is basically how I'd sum up this moment in his journey. Like in kind of deeply theological terms, he's like royally messed up. Um, And he was one of Jesus's closest friends. Like he believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was convinced that he would go to the grave defending Jesus. But when Jesus was arrested, he denied him three times. You know, at the moment where Jesus needed Peter the most, Peter runs away to protect himself. You know, Peter wasn't who he thought he would be when it mattered most. And he's just left with that kind of shame of kind of failing at the most important moment. And then Peter hears this incredible news. Okay, Jesus has risen from the grave. And can you just imagine like the weird mix of feelings that must have just been going on there for Pete? Like probably uncontrollable joy. Like the guy he loved, like his best friend has risen from the grave. Amazing. There's probably quite a lot of confusion because flip, that means that the guy I was hanging out with for the last three years actually was the son of God. Big existential crisis probably happening, something to process. And then there's probably some terror as well. Because he's like, the last time I saw Jesus, I was denying him. Like, where do I stand with Jesus? And in this chapter, we read that Peter's gone back to his old life. He's fishing. And they've been fishing all night in a boat out on the lake, and they've caught absolutely nothing. But then they hear this man kind of shout from the shoreline, like, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And as they do this, they catch this incredible amount of fish. And suddenly Peter realizes, oh, like the guy shouting on the shoreline is Jesus. And like his stomach must have like turned in that moment. You know that feeling when you're going to have a really hard conversation and like butterflies start to breathe faster, muscles tense up. Like what is Jesus going to say to me? And we read that Peter just instantly, classic Peter, he just dives straight into the shore, uh, straight into the water and swims furiously to shore. And some of the kind of more gracious commentators in this moment, they just suggest Peter's so excited. He just cannot wait to be with Jesus. So he's just like swimming furiously. But then there's this other school of commentators who are more my kind of people, who are slightly more cynical about human nature. And they kind of point out that Peter's probably trying to save face in this moment. Like he knows that Jesus is probably going to tell him off. So he's like, I don't want that to happen in front of all my mates. I just want to have a private chat quickly, get this over with. And so when he arrives, what does he find? He finds Jesus cooking him breakfast. And we're told this really strange detail in the text. We're told that Jesus has made um, a charcoal fire. It's a fire of burning coals. And the word to describe this specific fire in Greek is anthrokian. Um, and it's a really obscure word. It's only used twice here in the whole, of the, the whole of the New Testament. Once here. 
And the other time, it's used to describe the fire that Peter stood round when he was denying Jesus. And a charcoal fire has a really distinct smell, right? Like if you go to a barbecue, like your hair is stinking for days, like it's not a good smell. Um, and we're told by psychologists that um, the most triggering sense for our memories is smell. Um, and I don't know, I was just thinking this, I don't know if there are memories um, that you get when you smell something. Um, it just like instantly transports you somewhere. For me, does anyone remember the body spray impulse? Anyone? Yeah, there's some nods. Okay, that played a big role in my teenage years. Um, and let's be honest, it's probably an era we don't want to revisit, right? Um, but every time I smell body spray impulse, I just feel like an awkward teenager again, like dousing myself before the school disco, like cringe feeling. But you know, smell doesn't just remind us of something. It makes us feel how we were feeling. And the last time Peter smelt that distinct smell of charcoal fire, was when he was denying the man that now stood in front of him, instantly transported back to that memory of shame and guilt. And Jesus turns to him and he says, come and have breakfast. Now, if I was Peter, I'd have been like, what have you put in the breakfast? Like, maybe that's just my cynical view of human nature, but I'd have been even more scared at this point. Is this some deeply passive, aggressive way that Jesus is going to get back at me? But then we read this from verse 15. This is what happens. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said to this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Like, doesn't this just reveal to us the kind of God that we worship? Like Jesus only has a few days, just a handful of days before he's taken up to heaven. And he spends one of them taking the time to restore the faith of an ashamed disciple. Like he takes the time to recreate the scene of Peter's greatest failure in order that that failure would no longer define his life going forward. Like he takes the time to show just one man the call that he gave him all of those years ago. He hasn't messed it up. He can still follow him. The offer is still on the table. And this invitation that was extended to Peter is the call that Jesus gives to every single one of us in this room today. Come follow me. Like despite your past, despite how you've messed up, despite your weariness in this moment, the anxiety that's within you, whatever you're feeling, the call on your life has not changed. Come and follow me. And in Matthew 13, Jesus gives this picture of what this call to follow him actually looks like. He says this, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had. He bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found a pearl of great price, he went away, sold everything he had and bought it. Like to follow Jesus is both to give everything we have and to receive more than we could ever imagine. Like was it a sacrifice to buy that field or that pearl of great price? Like absolutely. Was it a sacrifice for Peter to follow Jesus? It totally was. He's going to be led where he does not want to go. 
But in joy, we read, he gives up everything because he's discovered something greater. And so today, I just want to spend a few minutes just unpacking that paradox of following Jesus by looking at two things. Like, what is the cost of following Jesus? And what is that pearl of great price that we receive? So the cost of following Jesus, what does it actually look like to follow him? Well, Jesus spells it out pretty clearly in Luke 9, verse 23. He says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And what we see here is that the call of God on our lives demands a response from us. Like to accept God's call to follow Jesus means to die to ourselves, to our own way of doing things, to our own moral codes and desires, and to follow his invitation to follow him, to follow his way. Jesus' invitation, um, in the words of Bonhoeffer, is like, if you want to really live, first come and die. Welcome to church this evening. And I've often thought, kind of when reading this, that Jesus really could have done with some sales advice. Because like, when for me, if I'm asking someone to do something, I'm very, very, you know, I'm like, hi there. Hope you're doing well, question mark. Something nice about the weather probably chucked in there. And then I just wondered if there's any chance, no worries at all, if not. But, but would it might be possible that you might consider doing this, just throwing it out there, feel free to chuck it away. Like, I am caveat, caveat, caveat. But with Jesus, there is literally no softly, softly, softly approach. He's so honest about what it will cost. It will cost you everything to follow him. He says it up front. But what Jesus is saying here is, hey, before you jump into following me, you need to weigh up the cost. And he says it because when you do the maths, it's an absolute no-brainer, right? Like, it's the story of the hidden treasure. It's the story of the pearl of great price. The return far outweighs the cost every single time. But it requires us to give every single part of ourselves. It might mean a death to our reputation. Like when people say, you actually believe that. Or a death to a career ambition when what it takes to climb the ladder is incompatible with following Jesus. Or a death to a life of comfort, like we go without so that others can receive. A death to our pride, like not chasing a life of status um, or significance, but serving in the hidden and forgotten places. And it's hard, right? Because we find all sorts of ways to justify our self-denial, um, our lack of self-denial. Like, I'm very good at denying it, especially in our culture where self is king. You know, it's been said that the heresy of the Western church is the idea that God wouldn't ask us to deny anything. Like the Christian writer Sky Jafani, he nails it on the head when he says this. He says, my secret is I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God, a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. Like to say yes to following Jesus is saying yes to so many incredible things and do not panic, we will get there. But it's also saying no to a lot of other things as well. Things that actually sometimes are really good. They're not necessarily bad, but we're called to hold nothing back. 
Some of you might have heard of John Wimber. Um, he was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, um, which is a collection of churches, and he saw God work in incredible ways throughout his life. Um, and he was someone, though, who really experienced the cost of following Jesus. But he'd often talk about the pearl of great price that he discovered, this intimacy with Jesus. And he said it was worth everything he gave. And John became a Christian. Ooh, that could have been bad. John became a Christian when he was 29. And um, by this point in his life, he had a really successful musical career, like he was a successful musician. And in the early days of starting to learn what it meant to follow God, he attended this Bible study. And one night, they're kind of sitting in the lounge. They've had their, like, biscuit and tea, and it was the 60s. Um, and they're studying the parable of the Pearl of Great Price. And these other people um, in the group, they'd all been Christian for quite a while. Um, but John had never, ever heard this parable before. And so they're starting to read about it. And then suddenly, Jack, John just stands up in the middle of the room and he's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are you saying to me that to be a Christian, I might have to give up everything I have? And the other people in the group, they've all been Christian quite a while. They just start to shift uncomfortably in their seat. And they're like, oh, John, don't ask too many questions. Like we don't, re you know, we just read the parables. Don't, you know, think too deeply about it. And in that moment, John just knew instantly God was calling him to give up his career as a musician. And it wasn't that the career was bad at all. Like, just to be clear, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a musician whatsoever. But he knew that God was asking him in that moment to lay it all on the table. And so he did. He quit his job and he found work to support his family working in a, a factory cleaning oil drums. And him and his wife, Carol, they started to really struggle financially to support themselves on this new salary. And one evening, he had a phone call from some, like a contact of a contact in the music industry. And um, this guy had heard of John, and he wanted him to produce an album for a really successful band. They'd been touring with the Beatles. They were like their supporting act. Um, and he wanted them to produce an album. And uh, it, this kind of would have easily paid for like the whole year of his salary, like in one go. And um, John was like, oh, you know, maybe this is an answer to prayer. Like, I've been praying for financial provision. But he just felt a check in his spirit, and he knew that God was asking him to say no to that, and that he was actually asking him to leave this career for good. And so he turned it down. And his, his friends thought he was absolutely crazy. Like, they thought he was totally foolish, and at worst, like, irresponsible towards his family. And one day, an old partner from the music business he was part of came round to see him at his new work because he needed um, a signature to get his name off all the documents. And the, this music guy, he goes up to a man standing on the forecourt and he's like, hi there, can you just let me know where John Wimber's office is? And the man just like, looks at him like really confused. He's like, John, John doesn't have an office. And he just points um, over to this big oil drum. And John is just sitting in it, just cleaning the grease off the oil drum, like covered in oil. And the man just looks at him in disgust. And he goes up to John and he says, what are you doing here? Like, have you lost your mind? And John didn't know what to say. Like, he felt humiliated in that moment. And he just replied lamely, like, God did this to me. Not a great evangelistic strategy, um, but he just didn't know what to say, and he felt foolish. And more than anything, he felt confused as to why he was there as well. And his friend just took one look. He was really disgusted. He got this, the signature he needed, and he just drove off. And as John was watching this man drive away, he just felt the Holy Spirit say to him, there's no way to explain obedience and sacrifice to those who haven't discovered the pearl of great price. 
And in that moment, like John says, it was like something crystallized in his heart. And he realized that following Jesus would only ever look like foolishness to the world. But for those who have experienced Jesus, it makes perfect sense. Not, it's not easy at all. It's not glamorous. But in that moment, he realized that he would give anything to have Jesus. And that night he goes home and he goes through his cupboards and his closets and he brings out um, all the things of his musical career. So instruments, albums, like years of work, thousands of pounds worth of equipment. And he packs them all into cardboard boxes and he takes them to his boot of his car. And then he gets in the car, he drives a couple of miles away to the local tip and he throws it all away. And when I read that, I was like, oh, John, like, that's a little bit over the top, isn't it? Like, you know, you could have at least given those things to charity, like raised some money. Like, that's a slightly dramatic overreaction, calm down a little bit. But when I scratch below the surface of that, it's just there's something deeply uncomfortable about watching someone throw it all away for Jesus. Because to be honest, I'm not sure I could do that. I've got quite a good setup here. Like, I'm doing good things for God in my life. My life isn't that bad. Like, sure, when I was a teenager, maybe I was a little bit more up for that kind of thing. Um, you know, I was more kind of, you know, like, let's go for it. Like, let's live that kind of life. But I've now got responsibilities. Like, it wouldn't make sense. But the call isn't to maintain our seemingly good life for God. The call is to follow him wherever he leads you, whatever he asks and please do not hear me wrong here. I'm very much not suggesting that we all just go to our bosses tomorrow and hand in our notices. Please don't do that. Um, although for some of you saying that, that actually might genuinely be the case. And if that is, prayerfully discern that with some trusted people. But the point is this, like the question I'm asking is like, what is the posture of your heart? Like, does Jesus really have full say over your whole life, over your money and over your relationships and over your career? And maybe there's something that instantly comes up for you today that you know, actually, I don't know if I can give that bit over to God. Like, there's just something that comes to mind right now. Like, what would it look like to surrender that? Like, in a moment, we'll have some time for prayer and just asking, like, Jesus, how do I let you have control? And this leads us to our last point, because the only reason John Wimber was able to do any of this stuff was because he had discovered the pearl of great price. Like, he discovered Jesus. You know, and what John Wimber discovered, what Peter found out, what countless men and women down the ages have given their life for is the joy of knowing Jesus. Like following Jesus has enabled them to walk through the good, the bad, the ugly of life with an unshakable hope because the story of his death and resurrection is their lived experience. Like they have learned what it means to pick up their cross daily and to give it all. And because of that, they have experienced the resurrection life that's an offer the other side of death. Like Jesus paid the ultimate cost on the cross. And as he burst out of that grave and defeated death forever, he gave us an invitation to follow him, to bend the knee and to call him Lord and to experience the grace that can transform lives. And I guess my question today is, do you know him like that? Not do you know about him or like you, you intellectually ascribe to the story, but do you know him? Is he the one that your whole life is orientated around? And as I was writing this, I just had this sense that for some of us, like we used to know Jesus like that. But something happened. Maybe, you know, we just grew up a bit and we thought, oh, gosh, that was just something for like naive younger people. Or maybe we've experienced disappointment. Something didn't turn out how we'd hoped. 
And over that time, disappointment has crystallized into apathy. And now we just live with this like low-grade dissatisfaction with our faith. Like we've diluted the call down to something manageable, something acceptable on the surface. And following Jesus has gone from being the thing that our whole life was orientated around to just singing the songs on a Sunday, standing up and sitting down at the right moments, adding our amen to prayers, going to the right events. Like a faith that was once on fire is now just theory. But the tragedy is, is that we miss out on the great, the pearl of great price. Because sure, like theory can help make sense of the world, right? But it will not set you free. Like a theory is fine when everything is working well, but it cannot comfort you in moments of pain. Like a theory can explain what's happening in the present, but it will not give you a solid hope for future. But Jesus can. Like the one who conquered death itself, who has given us a hope that cannot be shaken. He isn't offering us theories and concepts that we intellectually ascribe to. He wants all of you, not because he's greedy, but because a surrendered life is the only way we allow him to redeem and heal and restore us. And in turn to redeem and heal and restore a broken world. And if that's you today, if you know the flame has died a bit in your faith, I think Jesus is standing at the shoreline of your life and he's calling to you, come and have breakfast with me. And we have a choice in this moment, like to either ignore the call and to just carry on fishing, keep on going through the motions, or to jump into the water and swim to shore. Like Jesus wants to encounter you afresh today to take the weariness or the anxiety, the hurt, the anger at him, whatever it is, to take it and transform it into an encounter with grace. So just as I come into land, like I came across a story this week of the extraordinary intimacy that's found when we follow Jesus, even when it costs us everything. And it's the story of a man called Ming Dao. And he was a Chinese Christian and preacher. Uh, in 1955, he was imprisoned by the communist government in China um, as being a threat to the state because he refused to endorse the uh, Chinese state-governed church. And he was thrown into jail. He was tortured and he was told to renounce his faith. And he had spent years beforehand counseling Christians to stand resolute in the face of persecution, to kind of keep on going no matter the, what the cost. But after several months in this prison cell, prison had broken him. And one day a state interrogator sits him down and he says, like, this is the deal. Either you stay in prison for the rest of your life or you renounce your faith in Jesus. You sign this confession renouncing your faith and you get to walk out of here today a free man. And fearing what imprisonment would do to him, Ming Dao, he signs the confession and he renounces his faith and he's released from prison. But after he's released, a few days after, he's just flooded with grief as to what he's done. It's that story of Peter. Like he thought he'd never deny Jesus, but at the critical moment, he falters. But Ming Dao, in this moment of grief, he finds Jesus calling to him on the shoreline of his faith. And he has this incredible encounter with grace and he resolves in his heart to follow him again. And so what he does is he walks into the police station and he asks the authorities to rip up the confession and to rearrest him. And sure enough, he's quickly imprisoned. He's sentenced to life in prison in solitary confinement. But the way that he talks about those years is utterly remarkable because he calls those years, uh, that time in prison, his honeymoon with Jesus. He said that as he walked back into prison, the feeling of utter emptiness that came over him when he denied Jesus 
was replaced by this strange sense of fulfillment and peace and new life. And he prayed and asked Jesus, like, what does it mean to follow you in this cell? Like, I'm in solitary, solitary confinement. How can I be used at all? And he was an evangelist at heart, and he wanted to reach the people in prison. And one day he had this moment of inspiration. Like, the cell was cut off from the rest of prison except for one thing, the toilet. And the sewage pipes running from the pit toilet in the corner of his cell were linked to the others in the block. And so right there and then, he's like, I wonder if this might work. And he basically kneels down by the pit, and he starts preaching into the sewage pipes. Like, you, you literally couldn't make this stuff up. And the sound starts to carry down the pipes, and he realizes that people can hear him. And so each day, he kneels down by the pit, and he starts preaching, telling people about the pearl of great price that he has discovered. Complete and utter foolishness, right? And for weeks, he receives no response. But then one day, a man replies. And then others start to answer. And over the next seven years, 96 prisoners come to know Jesus through his preaching like that. He starts to disciple them and grow them. And an underground church is born in the midst of one of the darkest places on earth. Like his desire to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, brought resurrection life in the midst of that place. And in total, he spent 23 years in prison. And when he was later released, he was asked how he described that time in the cell. And he turns to the interviewer and he's just got this kind of like twinkle in his eye and a smile. And he just says this, that cell was the classroom of grace. It's like total foolishness. Surely, you know, the rest of the world thinking those 23 years have been totally wasted. What a fool. And yet for him, he's discovered a pearl of great price and it was worth giving everything for. Like, Do you know Jesus like that? Like what we see from the story of Peter is that Peter's legacy is not his competency at following Jesus. He's not really that good at it. But what that shows us is that being a follower of Jesus isn't determined by how good we are. Being a follower of Jesus is determined by the measure of our ability to accept his grace. And what Peter teaches us is in that our moment of weaknesses, when we mess up, we're not disqualified. Like we don't have to cover up and hide. To follow him means to open ourselves up to more and more and more grace. That's why John Wimber could leave it all behind, not because he was holier than anyone else in this room, but because he experienced the grace of Jesus that changes everything. Like what Peter shows us is that the great temptation of following Jesus is to think, I can do this in my own strength. But the great invitation of following Jesus is that one day too, you might have a legacy of grace, just like Peter. You might experience God as the one who is able to repurpose your life, to rework it again and again into something beautiful that he can use for the kingdom of God. Like the question is, will you let him? Will you accept the call? Will you receive his grace, pick up your cross daily and follow him?